in the 11FS offices in WeWork Allgate, London for episode 57 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Bitcoin ETFs, not yet, custodial woes and blockchain, you can bet on celebrity deaths. I'm not alone today. Uh, returning once again, Noelle Aitchison from Coindesk. Noelle, how are you? I'm very well, Simon. How are you doing? I am not too bad at all. It seems like uh, we had two days in the UK where it was briefly not insanely hot, and now all of a sudden it's decided, no, no, back to it. Well, I mean, the world is, is changing. Well, I would just like to say I live in Spain, and you think this is hot? <laughs> <laughs> touché, touché. <laughs> um, we're joined by Vinay Gupta, the CEO of Materium. Vinay, how are you? Uh, not bad at all. I just came back from a holiday, and I'm. this is the first real work I've done. Here we are. You call this work? Yeah, I was going to say, does this count really? <laughs> Almost. And uh, that, last it means, but, I, it means I have to turn my brain on. Um, <laughs> Not really, no. You, you can't hear this, listeners, but uh, Vinay did a sad face for having to use his brain. And last, but by no means least, Stefan Murray, uh, who's Global Head of Market Structure and Innovation for Financial Markets at ING. You've got a lot of words in that title. Yeah, it's too long. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, but Head of Market Structure, um, uh, just explain that for the uninitiated. Yeah, so what we do is really to look at how the world is changing around us in terms of uh, being in a bank in the market making uh, capabilities and believe me it's changing fast and uh, looking at how we adapt to it and what we have to do to prepare to to be relevant for our clients in the next few years cool all right so before we get started i just gotta thank the sponsors r3 today's episode is brought to you by r3 and their platform is corda the only blockchain platform that they say removes uh, costly friction in business transactions and they've built their own sort of uh, smart contract platform uh, that's focused on privacy and security uh, i love this quote as well um you know gideon greenspan don't you um of multi-chain uh, he recently described corda as compelling but strange um and it's uh, it is pretty compelling. One of the things people often say about R3 is like, oh, they're the, you know, the E-Corp from uh, Mr. Robot. They're, they're so, so evil. But actually go look at the code here. And when people do, they tend to find it pretty compelling. So um, if you want to do that, you can head over to r3.com and, or you can go to corda.net to learn more. And apparently they have a 60-day free trial of Corda Enterprise. So give that a go. Let's see what happens. Alrighty, without further ado, let's get started. Uh, first story from Bloomberg.com, a US Bitcoin ETF launch in 2018. Good luck with that one. And that's all from the headline. Um, what do you... What do you think about this, Noel? Are you going to walk us through the story a little bit? What, what's going on here? What's the background? The background is that for the, I don't even remember how many months, at least a couple of years, various institutional entities have been trying to get approval to list a Bitcoin ETF, which is an exchange-traded fund, which would allow institutions to, in a fairly liquid way, be able to have exposure to Bitcoin. For and not time. just institutions, right? So through your stock uh, broker, you could go buy the ETF through uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne or through Vanguard or whatever else, in theory, you would be able to just buy access to Bitcoin in a way that's far less complicated and in a way that looks like everything else you do. True, but I think the retail aspect of that is not quite as interesting as it used to be because it is relatively easy now to buy Bitcoin through one of the big exchanges and the UX of the wallets is getting easier and easier. I think the big thing, what the markets have been getting excited about, is the possibility that pension funds could have access to exposure, which they haven't before. And that's real money. That is what could move the market. Uh, That particular article that, that you were referring to was a bit strange in that it was um, mentioning that we shouldn't be able to have volatile ETFs. I mean, that's not what ETFs are about. You can have <laughs> volatile ETFs. It's not about the volatility. And the whole the SEC has yet again struck down the Winklevoss brothers' application. Uh, to Struck uh, down uh, in the private lie. Yes, is it Winklevoss brothers or is it Winklevi or what's the plural there? But anyway, yet again, they have struck down their application to list an ETF on the grounds that the market is not yet developed in terms of infrastructure. So it's, we'll come back to the SEC's reasoning in a bit, but... Um, we've got a, our very own real-life banker here, and Stefan. Volatility it must be a bad thing, right? Well, yes and no. It depends who you ask. Huh? Uh, definitely. And, and some people will seek volatility and want to have that. Or they'll try to protect it to, 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 as an investor based on 
your investment profile. Right? Exactly, right. So uh, post-financial crisis, the search for yield has kind of pushed into high tech. And you know, there aren't a lot of assets that really give you a return. So your pension fund that's trying to grow your nest egg, they're, they're looking around and they're scratching around for what's actually growing these days, given your know, low interest rate environment, uh, lots of quantitative easing. So the cash you have is worth less, not worth less, but worth less than it was. <laughs> uh, I can see Vinny nodding, but... Um, it's true, people are looking for different products in a way, right, where they can invest. And this was probably a way to, as you said, to, to invest in those new products. And the pension funds are limited anyway in how much they can invest in volatile investments, and that is designed to protect the cash. But they should be able to, I mean, I think we can all fairly agree that the, even the regulators agree that they should be able to get some additional return within the, within the parameters uh, of safety. As part of your portfolio, like if less than 2% of your portfolio is in emerging market equities, then you're okay with that. If most of it's in bricks and mortar and, um, you know, uh, bonds and, and treasuries and so on. And so, you, you, your investors will know this because it's public information. Yeah, yeah, it's part of their deal sheets in a way and their structure of their fund and it's documented and declared. And, Absolutely. Uh, but what the SEC is very concerned about is the possibility of manipulation. And we have seen many headlines recently, I mean, Tether is just one that comes to mind, of possible manipulation in the cryptocurrency markets. And that is not fair to the average investor, the possibility that big boys can manipulate behind. And we do have to realize that a large part of Bitcoin trading, if not most of it is done OTC these days. The OTC market, the over-the-counter market, is growing much faster even than the retail market because that's where the institutions are moving. They're not dealing through the retail exchanges. They're dealing OTC because that's where the liquidity is, and that's not transparent. Well, so this is the question that comes from CCN.com. Um, the, apparently, a commissioner at the SEC disagreed with the uh, the agency's rejection. And there seem to be a couple of motivations going on here. One is a question about, you know, will Bitcoin even succeed, so should we bother regulating, which I think is a a question that, that the one that's being challenged, uh, like, well, is, is it a, is it a regulator's place to judge whether this innovation succeeds or fails? I'm not sure if that's the case. But the other piece is, uh, and I think the material concern is around market manipulation. Uh, so one of the things is with a centralized exchange, it's very clear what controls they're doing, uh, what jurisdiction they sit inside, and how they're managing the potential for market manipulation. And uh, you know, that's something we see in financial markets. Both you see market manipulation and you see controls for market manipulation. They're concerned, though, about the crypto-to-crypto exchanges outside of the US where you can't necessarily manage that. So, Vinay, you look at this from a bit of a different perspective. You were the project manager on the first release of Ethereum. You've been involved in the idea of decentralization and the different forms of governance for decades now. Uh, how do you analyze the agency's response here, the regulator's response here, and should we fear decentralization? Well, I mean, in a nutshell, the regulators made very clear where they were in the pre-Trump era, right? Mm-hmm. So Obama goes to South by Southwest in 2016 and reads the Riot Act, right? Eventually, these technologies will lead to problems doing even simple things like tax collection. This is going to give us problems. We cannot allow ordinary Americans to walk around with Swiss bank accounts in their pockets. Mm-hmm. And I passed that article around to everybody and said, look, this is the red flare, right? Then the Americans give you two years for the smart money to leave, and then they just come in and cover the entire surface of napalm and light it. Uh-huh. Right? It's what they did with um, electronic gambling, right? The online casinos, they just gave the signal for the smart money to leave, the smart money left, and then they just napalmed the rest of it. So I think that we're living on borrowed time bought for us by our good friend Donald Trump, mm-hmm. right? The reason that we haven't seen decisive action by the U.S. government to make a decision on how to do this regulation is because the executive is relatively uninterested in putting any time and energy into figuring out some you know, quibbling of financial market things. And, of course, Steve Bannon was a World of Warcraft gold farmer uh-huh. and is very friendly with Brock Pierce, so the administration was kind of neutral towards these technologies. Now, with that as a background, I think we've got from now until the end of the Trump administration, at which point the U.S. government normal service will be resumed, and I think what you'll see is the national security types come in and crucify the entire field. So I, I disagree, and I, I think it's an interesting perspective, but it was interesting listening to Katie Horn on the A16Z podcast, former uh, Department of Justice. Uh, they looked at, uh, she, she said while she was at the Department of Justice, they looked at Bitcoin in 2012, and one of the first gut reactions was, how do we kill this thing? It, it, you 
you know, like, how do we get rid of it? And then they realize not only is that not desirable, it's not possible. And, and I think the first realization and the second realization were almost in order. Um, so to, to see it from a different perspective, the question then appears to be more around containment. How do we contain this until we can figure out how you make it sensible? Mm, no, it's head on. <laughs> well, well, let me explain why, right? You, you know what a ZK snark is? Yeah. Right. So the but it Z- might be worth. So a ZK snark basically is a chunk of cryptographic technology that lets you do completely anonymous, untraceable transactions. So you know that the system as a whole has conservation of value, but you can never see who paid what to who at any point. Right. So in the same way that Bitcoin is hyper transparent, the snarks are completely opaque. And there are many, many, many cryptocurrencies which are snark-based. Zcash, Monero, um, Dash, all that stuff, right? So those technologies are completely incompatible with rule of law. Again, I I want to challenge that point because I don't know that they are. Like Zcash, uh, Jack Gavigan, the COO there's good friend uh, one of the things that each of those is predicated on is the idea that an, uh, an individual with a wallet has a set of private keys mm-hmm. a set of private keys belong to a human and a human can be kyc'd and they can declare their private keys so you can you can still have a cash-like system and you can still have cash-like rules like the um, financial action task force which is if you see transactions above a certain amount to get in and out of the system and to be considered credible by most actors they would have to have either that A, been KYC'd, or B, what I'd hope could happen is we get something better than just, I'm going to take all of your government identity documents before I let you transact, which is, unless you do something suspicious, um, then uh, then then I won't ask for those. And if I do, I'll look for a attestment from those authorities. Ident- ro- identity escrow. Yeah. You escrow your identity, then you trade. But this doesn't solve the snark problem, right? In theory, you can watch the gates where money goes in and out, but then you've got the OTC markets. Mm-hmm. So if you've got an OTC market with snarks, forget it. There's no way to follow the money. And, and I think that's what's worrying uh, yeah. a lot of folks is yeah. there, there are these crevices that you can kind of creep down and it comes down but to the But don't you think it's, it's, it's a bit like what happened to the internet in the beginning, right? So they didn't know how to regulate it because it was innovating so fast mm. that you try on one corner and somebody creates something else, right? And, and they're in the same position now that... They try to understand, and boom, by the time they understand, there is something new coming in, and they're afraid that if they regulate this one, the new one will not be regulated, and and then they they pull back and they freeze everything. My general experience right. of policymakers and regulators, though, is they're some of the most informed on this subject I've, I've come across. I mean, the, I think the general perception is, oh, look at those government fools and blah, blah, blah. It's the opposite. It's the case. Because um, they move at a different speed and for some reason. Uh, I think, I think right? changing think... policy and putting out guidance is something that happens very slowly, exactly. but understanding in those agencies is, is quite high. Especially when you even have dissent within the same agency. Now, yes. I think, yeah. To put into context, we do have to remember Remember that Commissioner Pierce, who wrote the dissenting paper, was appointed by Donald Trump, and she is very anti-regulation. If you read some of her previous papers, mm-hmm. she's against financial regulation. Period. And she, before she was at the SEC, she was at the Mercatus Center. Wow, that's a useful color, really useful color. Listen, I, I, we could talk about this one for days, but we've got to get to the next story. Uh, next one comes from City AM, IBM. Barclays and Citigroup are building a blockchain-based app store. So this is uh, IBM and the foreign exchange settlement service CLS uh, are building a network based on blockchain tech for testing new applications. Nine financial institutions, including Barclays and Citigroup, apparently are signed up to participate. They've called it Ledger Connect, and apparently it's going to be this agnostic platform that offers apps done by different vendors for a variety of services. I'm, I'm not seeing this one, guys. I don't understand what CLS are doing here. I mean, CLS are huge. I mean, they, they settle so over a Describe 50%. CLS for us for the uninitiated. CLS is a mutualized gathering of foreign exchange dealers. And CLS, uh, fairly new, 2000, and you, you probably remember oh, more than I did, Stefan. 2004, I think. But uh, the technology behind CLS originally was uh, IBM mainframe. Mm-hmm. So that's yes. where the link is coming from. Yes, <laughs> they, so they're already in bed together. And CLS were one of the early adopters of blockchain technology. Not adopters, but the early explorers, the CLS net that was going since 2015. And we have to bear in mind just the size here. CLS settle over 50% of global FX transactions. So that gives them a big in. What I think we're going to see with this Ledger Connect is possibility of more standardized blockchain applications, perhaps greater interoperability, and the in to the enterprise capital markets that CLS can give. It feels to me like the hyperledger player doing quarter. 
So Ledger Connect is an app store. Uh, you see Corda have their core dApps. It's that enterprise play of like, how do you build apps on top of Hyperledger as, as an e- ecosystem? And this is a real play at getting that done. Yeah, but again, I, I think it's a good thing for the sector. I'm very excited to see what comes out of it. I still don't quite understand CLS's strategy here. I don't know that CLS understand <laughs> the strategy here. Um, because, I mean, CLS by its nature probably works best when centralized and stuck on a mainframe. I mean, frankly, it's all about speed. That's the what they're selling is this ability to, to net off at speed. Right? 2018, is it still relevant to you know process trade on a mainframe? Well, I think that's a very <laughs> fair question. So uh, for me, that's... That should be what CLS view is about, is trying to prepare what is the next CLS will look like. And, and I think that it running on a mainframe means that you have certain limitations. And a lot of those limitations are managed by a lot of the banks and other ecosystem actors, the buy side as well, and all of the intermediaries of which there are many uh, around, you know, the data never looks the same from one organization to the next. We use these uh, old standards like uh, Fix and Swift to send messages between each other. But actually there's a whole bunch of bits. Like if you imagine an XML file and at the back of it, you've got this bit that says, say anything you want here and people pork all of the stuff into the back of that. Uh, (laughs) So that's where you put the uh, EDI blob. Yeah. (laughs) But that's the problem. Like if somebody sends, like imagine if I was to send you an email, but I was to change the standard of email every time I sent you the email. Like it's it's always slightly different. Whereas email works because it's always got the, it's always got a subject, it's always got a two, it's always got a body, it's always got these things. Email's interesting that way, right? You know, there's a whole bunch of philosophy from the kind of, the early days of Unix about how you get software to interoperate, right? And the certain notion is that you should be very strict in what you emit and very Catholic in what you accept. Uh, and if everybody <laughs> programs to that standard, right, you're, you're very strict in what you put out, you're very, you know, you, you stick, you conform to the spec as tightly as you can on the output, and then the inputs, you'll read basically anything that people throw at you, yeah. sort of life continues, right? And I think that that, as we get to this new level of, you know, global technology integration, you know, we've got 30 years of attempts to glue together the world's computers with things like EDI in a way that works. Maybe yeah. 40 years. A long time, anyway. <laughs> What's different this time around is that we've got, like, three generations of failure to work from and a whole bunch of new tinker toys. And, you know, there's that question of, are we over the threshold at which you do get this machine-to-machine economy coming out of the back end of it? Or is this going to be another one of these high-watermark things where all these things get rolled out and all looks great, but at the end of the day, you still wind up going back to centralized processing? Yeah, and, and I think, so this is why, um, so it's Lee, Dr. Lee Brain at Barclays, uh, who has got a, a knack for saying something really insightful uh, while sounding like he's not saying too much. Um so he was saying Barclays is participating in this proof of concept so we can gain an understanding and experience of a new network for blockchain applications and test some use cases. His point here that's expanded in the article is like, could we run something where we have nodes that are hosted ourselves? What are the benefits of hosting nodes ourselves versus having an operator host those nodes? And if the operator is hosting those nodes, is there any real benefit to it being a node or just a centralized service? So they are looking to really kick the tires on this stuff, which which I think is promising. Yeah, I think it's promising. And, and it's true, like how many banks are running their own distributed ledger node today? Probably close to zero, right? So, so, so I want to quiz you on something there, Steph. We'll have to, you, to see how it goes. Do, from you, there. do you think that's though because we're trying to fix the old infrastructure step by step, and it turns out that that wow, I just quoted new kids on the block. <laughs> 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 Is it because we're trying to do the old asset classes with new tech versus surely the opportunity here is going for some white space and going for 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 something just not doing the same old shit basically. Yeah, but it's 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 hard because you your brain is is modeled for I see from the bank point of view you, you've been doing that for twenty years. Not just your brain ours, right? your regulators. Yeah, your brain. regulators, your infrastructure, the feeds that you have with your systems internally, etc. So it's very hard to scrub that and start Fresh. Yeah, I mean, it's the regulators are at the heart of that question, aren't they? I mean, if, if the regulators are like, yeah, sure, do what you like, the banks will innovate very, very quickly. If the regulators are as they've usually been, the banks will have to be, you know, kind of creeping along at the pace that they can 
rotate personnel in and out of the regulators. Mm. You know, I have a question for Stefan. What kind of use cases do you see for the banks of something like Ledger Connect? What would what would they get out of it? For me personally, I see that it's it's another technology like Corda uh, Enterprise that people can play with, right? And having CLS being one of the biggest uh, FX, um, you know, technology uh, behind the bank systems, probably they can attract some of the, those FX ecosystems there that Corda doesn't have that many FX applications uh, yet. So right? it could so be cost savings. Yes, yeah, so, so a lot of the applications we look at at banks is, is more on the back office side on cost saving uh, optimization. But if I'm an executive and I just go, well, this is never going to be real, it shows away, what's your pushback on that? Or do you have one? And you, if, sorry. I'm an executive and yeah. I say, this is years away. It's never going to happen. Like, all of this is crap. And this, I had it many times. I can imagine. But I had it many times three years ago. I did less two years ago. And I think now the people or even even venture capital firm will say, well, it will never happen. It will not work. Start to disappear. Right? It's like global warming. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you have less and less people, except one in the US who doesn't think global warming exists. But people are starting to turn around that thing and start to see real application happening. Right? We are still in the early days to see the banks using real application in distributed ledger, but it's, it's getting real now. So, so they, they are less pushback than there was. I remember saying to, um, I was briefing a journal whilst I still worked at uh, Barclays several years ago, and I sort of explained what I saw the business case as, and they went, oh, well, that's not very exciting, is it? And I went, well, by the time it <laughs> arrives, it's not very exciting. Like, punk rock is only exciting before you're allowed to do it. Once you're allowed to do it, it's it's not as exciting. When, and your, once parents you make get, it, when your parents get involved, it's Yeah, it's like, exciting. oh, no, how could they like that? <laughs> to be fair, if they'd wanted to do something exciting, they would have given people Bitcoin accounts, right? Would have been cheap, would have been easy, uncomplicated. You've already got all the KYC, right? They could have done it any of the banks could have done it trivially easily. Well, it's interesting that in the US, Fidelity does have a partnership to effectively do that. Now, it's a partnership and they've not integrated it directly, but they are looking at doing it directly, which is, again, why I think that the thesis around banning smart money won't happen. But speaking of bans, though, there is a story here from Coindesk um, where BBVA can't hold cryptocurrency, and that's a problem. So, Noel, you've got some background on this. BBVA recently announced a trial in which they did some loans and they it was a private blockchain linking to a public blockchain which turned out to be Ethereum and it's fascinating they were actually linking the both. I asked them why they wanted to do this and they explained to me that they do believe that linking to public blockchains has the advantage of recording the transaction and the transparency but the problem is they cannot hold cryptocurrency although even that is slightly misleading. The EBA, the European Banking Authority, does not forbid banks from holding cryptocurrency. It is not forbidden. It is discouraged, which is actually pretty much the same thing because nobody really wants to attract the attention of the EBA. But it is not forbidden. The banks like BBVA who are experimenting on this, and you know, hats off to BBVA on on their for their thinking on this, their way ahead, they are using the Ethereum testnet. Yeah. This. What they want to do is show the banks that there's nothing to be afraid of here. Mm-hmm. And what is especially interesting here is the possibility, if not the likelihood, that we will see big regulators at the EBA level starting to treat utility coins differently from security coins. If the EBA starts to agree with BBVA and its, and its peers that the public blockchains have a use in finance in terms of transparency and connectability and interoperability, then that is going to probably require the holding of some utility cryptocurrency. I see this more of a procurement question than a kind of banking question. Uh, So am I procuring a service? Yes, I'm procuring the use of a public blockchain. How do I do that? Well, it's denominated in in these tokens. They're like credits. It's like buying airtime. Oh, okay. Like, that's a very different question. So what's the material risk of that? It's a very different question to, are you holding cryptocurrencies? Are you speculating on that evil, funny internet money, as Vinay once said? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's only different if you look at it too closely. Because at the end of the day, right, you, you still end up in a position where a bank has a key pair, right? There's some set of authorizations for who's allowed to move coins around. And the only question is, how many coins are in the wallet and who's allowed to pull them out? Mm-hmm. If it's the trading teams that are pushing them in and out, and it's a lot of coins, you're in one regime. If it's the tech guys who are pulling them in and out, and it's, you know, 25,000 bucks worth of tokens, you're in another regime. 
and, and I think so banks are very I mean Stefan very adverse not reverse very used to well versed in creating controls around things like this you have controls for all this sort of stuff so and this BB, this this Although, EBA right the banks generally speaking don't have any of the infrastructure necessary to manage cryptocurrency key pair whether it's just being used for trading or whether it's being used for speculation you know the, the actual mechanics of doing the custodial of crypto inside of a bank are much, much worse than they look. It's a really hard problem. And it comes down to the Basel rules as well. I mean, how do you get your capital reserve requirements adjusted for cryptocurrencies? But if you're holding, I don't know, I mean, how much ETH, how much ETH do you really need to do uh, 10,000 transactions in a, in a, over the course of a year? Like, really? So, And especially on, on the pilot level. So the fact that um, they've, I like this statement, they're erring on the side of Caution, they've abided by the European Banking Authority recommendations not to use native token of Ethereum. Um, so not using that token comes from guidance, I think, that came from January 2015. It's one throwaway line in a bit of guidance that nobody's ever gone back and challenged. There are regulatory sandboxes now. This I- is like the FCA killing the soft. You see this? So a little while ago, the FCA released some guidance saying that uh, anything which isn't a regulated entity should not be producing uh, futures contracts on tokens, which accidentally kills the SAFT. So if you want to be, you know, on the good side of the FCA right now on paper, you can't use the soft anymore in the UK. Which is the difficulty I think a policymaker or a regulator has, which is their concern is defining their own regulatory perimeter and issuing guidance on their perimeter. Their concern, so that what they don't do is imagine all of this whole new world exists, put themselves in your shoes and really necessarily understand what you're doing until years later when, when the conversation evolves. And, and I think, as you said, Noel, the regulator isn't one voice. It isn't one um, one massive blob of, of thought. It's, it's lots of different humans with lots of different opinions. So I found this one interesting because you could use a sandbox for this sort of thing. And I'm surprised that that's not been the approach. And maybe uh, maybe they'll look to do that in the near future. There's one other interesting aspect to the BBVA story that I think has been a bit overlooked, and that it's one thing to have the transaction of the loans on the blockchain. But what they've also done is put the process of negotiating said transaction on the blockchain. I think this is a pain point that those of us that don't work in banking underappreciate how much hassle and time and effort goes into negotiating these things and how it comes down to very much he said, she said. It's very, very paper-based and still very, very outdated in the way it's processed. So so. it's prone for disruption. And, and, and somebody agrees yes. something on the phone and then didn't write it down and then got the wrong price and then you end up arguing with lawyers forever. I mean, this it, is where the real action is, right? Yeah. I mean, for all the shenanigans about blockchains, the, the, the real action is trade facilitation. And whether that's, you know, financial instruments or, you know, trucks of oranges, uh, at the end of the day, I mean, what, a third of the staff in banks are probably there basically to push paperwork around deals and to do reconciliation. The big four, 60, 70, 80% of their staff, you know, you should, five years out, never have to reconcile another thing ever for anything. That would be an ideal state if you could get internal programs to do change to work. But that's a different thing. But, (laughs) but I mean, the driver for that is that's 10% of GDP. Yeah, no, right. and and I think that piece is really key. That yeah. that massive difference it could make to not just a local economy, but a but a global economy. And and I think we need to flip the problem from a regulator's perspective away from what's inside my regulated perimeter to from an industry perspective. What are my risks and what should I do about those risks? So disclosure. I'm a founder of Global Digital Finance. I'm a believer in code of conduct. That's one route. Crypto UK are trying to do something similar. I saw that uh, Digital Chamber of Commerce just put out some guidance. I do think we will start to see um, marches towards this. I I think the big driver here is one belt, one road. I mean, the Chinese are going to roll out so much digital infrastructure as they do that, and they're going to roll it out as, you know, ruthless old America-style techno-imperialism. Right? China's internet is going to be their blockchain solution for doing trade facilitation. And if they get that right, all of the B2B trade will be on the Chinese infrastructure and all the B2C stuff will be on the American infrastructure. And they're tying it in with hardware as well. Yes, they are, right? So, you know, while we're all here monkeying around with our little regulators, the Chinese are preparing to basically eat the future. <laughs> and, and on that bombshell, I'm going to move us to the next story. So Bloomberg.com, Mike Novogratz's crypto firm apparently lost $134 million in the 
first quarter. So Galaxy Digital's trading business had uh, $13.5 million of losses and an additional $85 million of unrealized losses on their digital assets. But uh, Mike Novogratz came out and said, I'm very proud of the progress that we've made since the beginning of the year. Uh, He's the chief exec and uh, we've assembled a world-class team with deep institutional knowledge and they currently have around $280 million of assets, um, uh, including digital assets and investment, according to their disclosures. What I like here, the transparency and the disclosures, and that he came out and just took this on the chin. Um, but it, is this just the fact that he was building a fund in a in a bear market? I think or that, is there more here? Yeah, it's yes, back timing, it's a bear right? market. Yeah, it's a bear market, and I think the headline is misleading, and this yes. annoys me so much. I mean, one hundred and thirty-four million dollars is a lot. But it has to be put into context. It's just a number. If you don't put it into context, it's meaningless. If you have a $134 million loss and you've got $1 million in capital, then you're in deep shit. If you have that level of loss and you've got $200 million in capital, as they seem to have, okay, it's bad, but it's not quite the same thing. And it's not and a realized loss. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Market to market. And so what he's done is he's got the bad news out of the way. Institutional investors, they're pretty much universally going, so what? They don't yeah. care about historical losses. They also don't care about absolute losses. They care about returns going forward. Yeah. And, and uh, given what markets have done in recent weeks, uh, what I think is actually probably more interesting about this is this is a big institutional investor doing big institutional things like disclosing where they're at, which actually we've probably needed for quite some time. And the maturity of the funds in this crypto asset space is, is really starting to come up a level or two. Yeah. And frankly, they could have lost a lot more money. That's actually not a bad result, given that it wasn't, I mean, you know, bear market doesn't really begin to describe what crypto does. It's like, you know, extremely hungry, ravenous polar bears invade your kitchen kind of market. (laughs) (laughs) They're listing tomorrow, I think, or something, aren't they? Don't they start quoting tomorrow? Really? I didn't know this. Yeah. I know they start to quote on one of the Toronto Stock Exchange. TSX, I believe it is, if I haven't. Look out tomorrow. for that. So that will have been last week as you listen to this. No, wait, that will have been Wednesday as you listen to this. Okay. I saw Novogratz speaking in the last couple of months, and he's very impressive. Up yeah. close, yeah, he really knows his stuff. So I, th- I think this is also important in terms of caliber, right? Yeah. The, the biggest shift that I see is kind of an old-timer in crypto, because you know my, my tenure goes back to the mid-1990s, is that we're finally at the point where people that are domain experts outside of the crypto world are coming into the crypto world. So you're beginning to meet people that are legitimately really good at like provenance of art, who are like, let's do blockchain for provenance of art. Whereas it would have been a bunch of clueless kids who said, hey, what about putting art on the chain? And what they knew was blockchain. And that incoming of the subject matter experts, this is why the funds are professionalizing, because you've now got fund guys running crypto funds rather than crypto guys running crypto funds. And, you know, in some ways, that's a sad transformation, like, oh, all the funds going out of it. But on the other hand, this is also why you don't have like $300 million worth of other people's money that went up in smoke just from the core Ethereum team shipping bad software. Yeah. yeah. And I think that um, your parents got into punk rock moment is, is definitely starting to happen. Uh, but actually, that creates opportunity. So, Stefan, we were saying earlier, you know, the, the search for yield is pushing people this way. But actually, there's still things missing from that market. Like, as you look at it as somebody who's worked in banking, you know, the custody solutions are still early. There's the questions of, from, from the regulatory standpoint. Like, if you were to rank what you think the issues are that you would hear before a big bank would even look at it, what do you think those challenges are? Maybe in, in, in one way, we, we solve a lot in the last few years, right? So now we are in a maturity model where we can create stuff around it. And that's what the example of the fund is one of them. But the product or what BBVA is doing is another example, right? So we are in the beginning to creating the application to do that. What we don't have as the challenges, yes, we don't have that many proof points or what are the successes of the people who created that, except from the early adopters who make money out of it. But it's not what the banks are looking at, they're looking at real business solving issues yeah. uh, so to, to that. But I don't think there is technical challenges anymore. It's more regulatory challenges, perception from your investors or your shareholders, reputation risk uh, still to, to do. Um, and what's, know, it, just, what's it like in the bank's boardrooms now? Is there Are you seeing buy-in at the highest level? I think there is, as you say, right, from, from years ago where it was like, don't touch it, don't talk about it, I don't want to hear it. There's a curiosity. Uh, the curiosity uh, is there. And it's, it's, it's really now looking around to say who, who is going to be the first mover to say, okay, if they do it, maybe we should do it. Did you see the um, Gallup poll that came out uh, last week, I think it was, or a couple of days ago, where they surveyed 2,000 US investors? 
and uh, as with all these things there's a rounding error so don't worry this doesn't add up to 100 uh, so about 75% said not interested or it's too risky 25% said oh I'm curious that's interesting and 2% admitted to owning crypto uh, which you know makes 102% but uh, <laughs> that aside rounding errors that aside I think that's interesting because that Bitcoin curious that crypto curious is is really so, so there's an anecdote I was with the um, the board of a, a very large financial services organization about two three months ago and there's this really funny moment in which everybody sort of had the theater of oh but that's really bad isn't it and then I was like hands up if you actually own a tiny bit of crypto and every hand <laughs> in the room went up and I think this Busted. is yeah and, and this is the reality is that everyone has this almost the way I'm supposed to pretend to act in financial services at the moment and then what I really think and actually that will change in time I, I suspect if it's not already with the millennials and the fintech and the whole change of the culture yeah absolutely um, yeah, I mean the gigantic river of money is kind of quite persuasive to financial professionals well and this was the point I think that uh, the Coindesk research team made at the beginning of consensus they gave their kind of overview of where they thought the market was instead of the market and the first thing they did is you know the, the old Adam Smith quote which is don't trust the the butcher's uh, ability to deal with meat trust their self-interest don't trust the banker's ability to deal with money trust their self-interest that's kind of the the key all right i gotta move us to the last story or last couple of stories actually fortune.com coinbase find absolutely no insider trading of bitcoin cash so there you go they looked really carefully Should we just move on? They found nothing. Like <laughs> so, therefore, there's nothing. Uh, wow, wow! I do have a question. Maybe, maybe near the answer. Coinbase. Okay, the, the price went up a Bitcoin Cash, and obviously, it was investor insider. It could have been insider trading, but then just a few weeks ago, Coinbase hint to the market that they're thinking of listing a handful yeah. of coins, and the prices shot up. And we haven't heard anything since. And to what extent is that market manipulation? Well, so there's always this fine line between disclosures and transparency transparency and moving the market. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I think this is a hard one though, because in crypto, will it get listed on a market really does drive the price. And there are these telegram groups where the rumors of that stuff are used to push shit coins onto bag holders, well, frankly. But, I mean, the fundamental question is, did the folks inside buy before they made announcements? And, and that's I think what it boils down to. But that, you can't that, tell because the very wallets hard. are anonymous. Uh, yeah, you see, right? So the, the notion that we're going to be able to impose any kind of financial regulation in terms of price manipulation in these markets... It's just not going to happen. See, I would love to see something like the senior management regime, which is in order to be someone senior with decision-making processes inside of one of these organizations, decentralized or not, uh, then you should disclose what your uh, holdings are. And I would love to see, I would love to see, the optimist in me would love to see um, the community enforce that as much as regulators do. But it's completely impossible to audit. There's no way to prove that somebody doesn't own something Mm. in, in this domain, right? So... I mean, the, this, the problem that we're always going to hit is, you know, it's bad enough with Bitcoin, but it's much worse once you've got ZK Snarks on the table. There's just no way to close the rat holes, mm. right? And we have this kind of persistent fantasy that we're going to be able to domesticate these things. Mm. Hell no, <laughs> right? Um, you know, you can domesticate them in as much as you can have coins where you have to be whitelisted in order to be able to own a coin. Well, then right? this is the Japanese approach. There are a few, there are a few like that, right? But you're always going to wind up with open source technologies based on things like SNARKs, which are really serious black net financial systems. And the possibility of exterminating those requires like massive policing of the internet in a way that we've never done before, or you just accept they run. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the big shift that you're going to see here is you know, one branch of the technology is becoming more and more and more legitimate, at which point they're eventually going to just get rid of the coins mm-hmm. because the trade facilitation stuff that you can do with crypto is completely independent of the coins. The coins are irrelevant. Well, so I wonder if the tokens themselves don't have some value because this is the um, the argument about is a depository receipt to the way we record assets today valuable or do we need to change that into something that is a cryptographic token? And yeah. could you do that on a centralized service? Yeah. Well, absolutely, right? But that, that branch, Right, that branch is pretty easy. It's pretty predictable. We know what's going to happen with that. Mm-hmm. In all probability, the financial institutions will be strongly discouraged from using essentially wildcat central bank of the internet funny money, mm-hmm. and they'll get moved onto central bank digital currencies. 
right? You guys are grown-ups. You know how this is going to go. You know, in the long run, do you want your monetary policy designed by a bunch of nerds that you can't even identify? Or do you want it done by you know, sensible people like us, the government? <laughs> Speaking of designing monetary policy, um, the next story comes from uh, the wonderfully named Nathan Sexer, who is the chief communication officer of Consensus. He sounds a little bit like uh, he's like a James Bond ripoff, but slows against your name aside. This is the Consensus State of Stablecoins 2018. And stablecoins are kind of either, depending who you talk to, they're either just kind of pseudoscience and, and a bunch of crap, or they're the next big thing. And indeed, Andreessen Horowitz, A16Z, have invested into one of these thingies. So uh, what's a stablecoin, Vinny? The, the hope is that you can have some system for issuing a token, and you can have some reserves and some underlying assets and a bit of this and a bit of that. And what it will result in is, you know, a fluctuation of one or two percent around a target price, and it will stay there relative to the dollar. Which, yeah. So there's a and there's a few ways to achieve this. One of those is to hold a whole bunch of dollars and say your token is worth one of these dollars that we've got in the bank account. And this is always the argument about tether. Do you really have the dollars? It's a very very simple approach, and it shouldn't be that hard to prove they have the dollars. Haven't they just uh, hired Price some, somebody, one of the big account, one of the big four? To Did they manage to hire somebody in there? Because the, the story the, from a few weeks ago was. They hired a law law firm Mm. because none of the big four would touch them. A few days ago, I saw a headline that they were talking to one of the big four, and I think it was Pricewaterhouse. Because verifying where the the dollars are, that shouldn't be that difficult. You're right. Right? We know how to do that. The fact that there's been all of this controversy and all of this lag about being able to verify where the dollars are, wow, that's stinky, right? Real stinky. Anyway, tether aside, this notion that you're going to be able to basically produce these stable coins... The question is, under you know what market regime does that collapse, right? So if you if you're one to one pegged with the dollar and you've got full reserve, fine, it's worth a dollar. End of story. Unless somebody embezzles the dollars and bolts, where it gets much more complicated is where you wind up with these complicated incentive machines like the Sweetbridge model, where you've got underlying assets, but you've got more underlying assets than you need, and you have a whole bunch of you know, complicated pricing architecture that will attempt to level out the fluctuation. And, and so this was Basis Coin as well. There's a whole bunch of those where they're like they're, they're selling shares and they're buying debt in the same asset that's a token, and they're trying to create all of this stuff, which is basically being a central bank, but with a coin. Yeah. Um, and, and it, like, but the, what they're trying to achieve sort of makes sense. Is you have this coin that's digitally available that can move at the speed of an email, um, that isn't volatile. Um, that um, potentially is scalable and could compete with Visa. Like, that's the dream here that they're going for. Well, I mean, if you're going to do that, why compete with Visa instead of competing with the dollar, right? If you've got something which is genuinely a stable coin and the governments aren't continually printing more money than they can actually pay, uh, pay for, you know, you could wind up in a situation where you wind up with a genuine global currency whose providence was outside of the reach of the nation state. And that's incredibly advantageous to small nations who are currently trapped into using superpower money for everything that they want to do, mm-hmm. right? If only it was possible, right? Stable relative to what is the real fundamental question. Given that all of this stuff is naturally global, you know, what currency do you want to be stable to? Or do you take the approach of producing something which is like a super global SDR, mm-hmm. you know, basket of 200 currencies, 500 commodities, a whole bunch of stock, and then you wind up with a kind of genuine global value pool that you use as the backing for some kind of stable coin. It's an interesting concept. Nobody's thinking at large enough scale. The real purpose of stable coins is not to peg the stable coin to an individual nation state via currency. For that, you can do full reserve. Why make a big deal of it? Right. The issue with the stable coins is how do you produce something which is more stable than any of the global currencies? And Bitcoin locked in the monetary policy on you know its funny-looking exponential graph that's not the only possible monetary policy for a central bank of the internet. You central do. bank of the internet. Yeah, and, it, yeah. and it does yeah. bring back the question to utility versus speculation. Yeah. And this is pure utility and it highlights the need that we seem to feel we have. People are chasing utility, I guess. Yes, I, I think so as well, Ron, because it's, it's one of the good use cases that kind of came out of it, yeah. Interesting times. All right, uh, last um, big story, and then we're going to move on to our Twitter of the week. So, story from Motherboard, uh, which is part of the Vice Media Group. Assassination markets for Jeff Bezos, Betty White, and Donald Trump are now on the blockchain. It's becoming, uh, it's becoming more like a Black Mirror episode every This day. is fully Black Mirror, isn't it? So, uh, this comes from Arga. Uh, Arga being, I guess, uh, they've launched a prediction market, and prediction markets are it's essentially gambling, right? But on the internet, using crypto coins to do it. 
And the really interesting thing here is they've shipped a real thing that you can use Ether for. So this is a working dApp, but this isn't a helpful thing to uh, helpful thing to be getting headlines about, I guess. Well, um, I mean, prediction markets are super useful, right? I mean, if you want to get really expert. Uh, insight into something like who will win the American election. Prediction markets have a great track record of pulling that kind of information to the surface. But this is this is the same as bookies um, and gambling, but just done with like which way are people bidding and the the live odds, right? It, it's gambling. It's not a prediction. No, it, I mean prediction markets are distinct from ordinary gambling. Because in ordinary gambling, there's a substantial random factor. Prediction markets are often used in areas where the random factors are much smaller than people think they are. Mm -hmm. And then all the different teams who've got predictive models get into a ring and duke it out. So what you get is an evolutionary pressure towards teams with better models making more money. And by creating uh, financial incentives for having high-quality, accurate forecasts, you very quickly get price stability on the best forecasting tech available. So they're a really efficient way of moving money from the pockets of people who are just gambling to the people that actually know what's going to happen next. It creates a premium for information. It creates a premium for information super efficiently. So I'm all in favour of prediction markets. It's just they have this side effect that you can also use them for AP. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit dark webby, isn't it? Well, I mean, you know, we, we often forget that the world that we live in is filled with people murdering other people for <laughs> right? For whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have this sort of thing of like, oh, an assassination market, how terrible. I think, you know, the, the colonial powers bagged something like 50 African heads of state or major political leaders in the 20th century, right? They were just knocking those guys every time they even said the word socialism. Um, the world that we exist in is maintained by assassination to a really substantial degree, you know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, JFK. So the idea that you're going to rebuild the future of the internet and nobody's going to bring a gun is very unrealistic. Mm -hmm. it, all that it is, is it's the real world online. What I find interesting about it is what this means for people who uh, are trying to prevent such types of behavior and now the transparency that's available to them. I think there's there's this really interesting counterintuitive benefit to this stuff. It seems scary when you look at it, but it's uh, it's like uh, using Bitcoin as a great way to get caught laundering money. Using this as a great way to, to see uh, who's at risk. I, I'm absolutely sure that, you know, if anybody actually shoots somebody based on an assassination market, they're going. You know, there's no way they're going to evade capture, right? Yeah, exactly. The, this the, because the, I mean the actual the actual mechanics of you know people hiring hitmen. When you actually look at things like the prosecutions around this, and I, you know, I've got some interest in how AP works. When you actually look at the way that those markets work in the real world, it's usually a bunch of idiots talking to undercover policemen. You know, practically all of the people that want to go and hire hitmen wind up talking to undercover cops. Because for the undercover cops, they're basically just sitting there with an enormous bag, like, oh, yeah, you got another one, right? Yeah, get in the bag. Your ex-wife, did you say, yeah, sure, no problem, get in the bag. And the idea that you could actually just casually set this stuff up, up on the internet and have it not be wall-to-wall -wall undercover police... It's unrealistic. Yeah, exactly. Right, we've it's like the Silk, the Silk Road story. Yeah, yeah. Well, most of the dark markets are full of uh, full of law enforcement. Yeah. Absolutely. We've already got you know super efficient mechanisms for suppressing assassination, which makes me wonder about the optics, right? Because there's there's this theatre of oh, it's also bad this decentralized internet stuff, and actually it's creating a lot of transparency to some of this negative activity. But we've got to move on, Vinay. I can oh, listen to you for hours. Really this is this is for <laughs> like we'll put some stuff up on social of uh, Vinay's best bits because um, you do have a habit. For these these uh, sound bites they're just unbelievable but i gotta run us through some stories we didn't have time to cover i have no idea what this domain name is cheapickup.com apparently the salt ceo's suspicious exit triggers scam accusations interesting one forbes.com uh, the world's first baby born on the blockchain in tanzania um i don't know if this was a virtual baby. i know it was I a real baby no wasn't it? But their, their legal identity was uh, was put on a blockchain which um it's also not the first time this has happened before i mean yeah, back in the early days of bitcoin but, but this, is, this is the classic we Plenty did the world's marriages. first yeah. Plenty of marriages. I don't know about baby registration. I'd, I'd heard about it. I mean, it must have happened. Yeah, I'm like somebody will have done it, but it'll be in an op return on Bitcoin somewhere and nobody will know what it means. Yeah. So this is the world's first one that got a press release. ABC.net.au. Bitcoin billionaire Brock Pierce wants to transform Puerto Rico into a crypto paradise go read this one people there was, this is on the back of a rolling stone article which was largely a puff piece about good old brock pierce uh not doing colonialism at all uh, and anyway, with how crypto much, how much would it actually affect puerto rico what he's thinking of doing quite a bit quite a bit how so? yeah. well 
I mean, you know, the notion, suppose you get substantial regulatory change and you could bring in a whole bunch of new financial services industries to a place that otherwise has no chance of getting them, right? I mean, if they had a, you know, think of if they had a Cayman Islands level of financial activity in Puerto Rico, total game changer, right? So the notion that you could basically plunk your kind of, you know, crypto Caymans there rather than the actual Caymans, you know, you can just about make the argument that'd be a lot of jobs, you know, you're going to need auditors, you're going to need, you know, accounts, all the rest of that kind of stuff. The question is whether any of the other political vision comes along or is it just a financial services shop? That, and I think that's what we're meant to see because a lot of this is uh, highfalutin, hoity-toity, we're going to make people's lives better, look at my Chesterhedron type uh, stuff. I never believe any of that stuff, right? I mean, because it is, you know, as, as an old-timer, right, the, the problem that crypto has always had is that people have confused finance and politics. Crypto is fantastic for finance, and it's failed every round of politics. Mm -hmm. Just where we are. Fair point. Well made. All right. It's Tweet of the Week time. Tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. (laughs) Okay, so Tweet of the Week this week comes from one and only Vitalik Buterin with his Twitter blue tick, um, non-giver of ether. Uh, which is trying to get around those ETH scams. Uh, So the tweet here is, I think there's too much emphasis on Bitcoin or ETH or whatever ETFs and not enough emphasis on making it easier for people to buy $5 to $100 in cryptocurrency via cards at corner stores. The former is better for pumping price. In other words, ETFs are better for pumping price. But the latter is much better for actual adoption. You know Vitalik pretty well, Vinay. How do you feel about this? I think that basically everybody is still thinking that the main application for crypto is going to be uh, B2C and C2C. And I think that's not true at all. I mean, I think the real game in crypto is cleaning up the enormous mess of B2B invoicing, you know, trade facilitation, invoice factoring. There's kind of, you know, whatever, $40 trillion a year of transactions that are essentially not automated in any meaningful way. People are still emailing each other PDF files. Mm-hmm. So I think the consumer stuff is more or less perfectly served by credit cards. Mm-hmm. Credit cards are amazing. They work really well for consumers. But it's not like you can use, you know, B2B credit card payments to do things like transfer hundreds of tons of goods. So I, I agree with your disagreement of this tweet, which is essentially, oh, well, we've got to get this into the hands of consumers to live up to the original vision. But I don't know that the original vision was right. The mess is in B2B. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I think probably is because the adoption was starting on the consumer side. So so people are talking more about it and it's more mature. But on the B2B side, it's where the big thing will happen. And, and uh, but it's still very early stage, so, so I think we we, sh- we have to continue to push for it. It's almost it. like you need to download this podcast next week to find out what happens next in this ever changing space. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, like speaking of which, though, I mean, get in touch, listeners. Tweet us at Beachin Insider with your questions. We're eleven FS. We we like to listen to you. Um, we're at eleven FS dot com, and uh, we're building banks for people. We're building real products, and uh, we have a platform called Eleven FS Pulse that allows you to see all of the wallets and all of the user experiences that are out there. So so get in touch. And by the way, we're hiring. So get in touch. We're looking for talent and go to 11fs.com and hit careers, then hit apply. Make sure you hit that apply button. We need <laughs> talent. We need people. We're, we're growing like a weed. Alrighty. Uh, Noel, where can people find out more about you? On Twitter at Noel in Madrid, where it is hotter than here. Oh. And uh, so don't forget to check out Coindesk.com. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Vinny? Um, Materium.com, which uh, looks like Ethereum, but with an M at the beginning, uh, where we figure out how to make smart contracts into legal contracts. And Stefan? At smallred on Twitter. And uh, we can see me on LinkedIn as well as Stefan Brilliant, thank you so much for being here and i got to thank the production team uh, our producers, Petrit who's not here but Laura who is here, hello Laura and of course Holly, our regular editor and also Michael who's back in the editing seat today and our media team who do awesome things and thank you for listening. Remember to hit subscribe leave us a review, don't just leave us a review on iTunes though, go anywhere anywhere that's reviews, it was a really good medium review that somebody did of our InsureTech show um, that was absolutely brilliant, so you know, if you feel like doing a medium review, just just do that not that I'm pushing you to do it, but I'm pushing you to do it right. <laughs> do uh, it <laughs> uh, we'll have more Blockchain Insider next week goodbye for now